Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. I want to get into, hopefully you've enjoyed this sermon series on Lent for the people. Uh, as Kel mentioned, we've talked about giving up impatience. Giving up is not a word, but unforgiveness. Or giving up enmity, not allowing uh, any form of barrier to exist between us and our neighbor. Uh, last week, I can't even remember what we talked about. I'm kidding. Uh, we, we talked about giving up. That was a joke. No one laughed. Let's move on. Lord have mercy. Um, we, we talked about giving up comparison, and we kind of deconstructed the roots of comparison, which is pride. So today we're going to talk more about pride, and uh, we're going to, by the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about giving up obsessing over ourselves. Obsession over ourself is the root. I just intoned right there of all evil. And so we're, uh, it's, I'm excited to talk about this. You guys are clearly like out of your mind excited to talk about. I could just, I can feel it from this wonderful group. Uh, March Madness, is, it, is that funk in your soul? Do I need to pray? Do I need to do an exorcism on March Madness, right? If your team didn't make it, God bless you. If you're an Oregon Duck, Duck fan, can I get an amen? Good win last night. Surprising. You, you have no chance uh, the rest of the way. But we love you still. We love you. Um, if you could turn to your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11. Before I do that, um, I'm going to share just a quick little story. Uh, many of you know, kind of like the last three years has been a rough year for my wife and I. And <laughs> I totally, um, and over this last three years, we, how do I say this? Veganism has been forced on me. And f- my coping mechanism um, has been, and we're getting out of that season, can't get an amen to that. Um, but my coping mechanism was I would use my kids, right? The kids need Chick-fil-A. Well, the kids don't need Chick-fil-A. The man of the house needs Chick-fil-A. And so we would go to, you know, we'd get Christian chicken. We all love Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A. But uh, the, the, really the, the way that I was able to cope with this forced vegan thing uh, with kale and broccoli, you will like bro- broccoli, right? Brussels sprouts. Anyone like Brussels sprouts? Really the most disgusting things ever created. Um, that's cabbage, right? It's cabbage. Um, the way that I'd cope is um, holidays. How many love holidays? And so Thanksgiving was a really, uh, this last Thanksgiving was tremendous. The Dallas Cowboys won. I slept pretty much the whole day. Totally kidding. Uh, we had a lot of turkey. My son, Wesley, loves turkey sandwiches. Uh, he actually got in trouble this last week. And uh, I think it was my wife leaned back and said, Wesley, you're just, you're only thinking about yourself. And his response was, no, I, I think about turkey sandwiches. That's what I think about, Mom. So we love meat. And if you love meat, can I get a witness? So uh, this, it's funny, I just, I, I, I glutted too much, too much turkey, too much pumpkin pie, all that kind of stuff. And I uh, started feeling, well, I had to get my stretchy pants on, right? You, ha- you have to change uh, because I just felt overinflated. You ever felt that way before where you've, you know you've ate too much and you just don't feel right? You feel sick. Um, it, it just, it, it's, it's hard to move around. You're just really tired. Like when you eat turkey, there's a physiological thing that happens to you. So that happened to me um, at Thanksgiving. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning that, because this swollenness, everyone say swollen. 
that feeling of like your stomach, if you've ever experienced that, going beyond its proper size, right? When you've had too much, too much food is, is what Paul really talks about throughout his letters to the church of Corinth. In, in the Greek world, they use this word called um, hybris. We translate it hubris, which means to think too much of yourself. Uh, Paul uses a rare word, and the word that he uses, uh, we would translate, and it's actually translating your Bible, to be puffed up. Everyone say puffed up. So this is like a special, as one, one commentator, one scholar says, this is kind of a special theme or light motif for Paul, that the basic human condition is defined by being puffed up, swollen, overinflated, and over a while uh, or over time, that's going to affect you. And so Paul is trying to, throughout the, his letters to Corinthians, is trying to undermine this. And we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's talking about super apostles. Everyone say super apostles. So super apostles, um, they, they basically were in danger of colluding with, within the world of ancient Rome, this listing of achievements. So if you're not familiar with ancient Rome, you would have public figures who would list all their achievements, either a governor or Caesar, and they would say, I conquered so-and-so. Uh, it would be like a Dallas Cowboy fan getting on social media and saying, we conquered the Oakland Raiders, right? And we do it every year. And it's like someone who loves dogs apparently that meant nothing to you. Um, someone going and saying, I love dogs, and there's so much more important than cats or whatever. So it's, it was a subversive thing, but people would list their achievements like, we conquered this army, or I built this theater, or I did this. Uh, scholars call it the art of self-magnification. So it was a common practice. Well, the church in Corinth was in danger of accepting this. Paul calls it boasting and it works with pride, that they were in danger of uh, allowing boasting and this hero worship or the cult of fame to shape how they understood themselves and how they expressed the good news. So we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, which uh, we're going to read this, and many of you are familiar with this passage. Remember growing up, it was such a confusing text, and, and I'll explain. We begin in verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. When I'm, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, so I, I love Paul. Paul is deliberately teasing the church in Corinth. Remember, you have super apostles that are trying to um, get control of this church. We find in Acts 18 and 19, Paul is the one who founded uh, Corinth. This church has spent about a year and a half teaching and making disciples. So you have these super apostles saying, nah, Paul isn't that. Um, and they would show off with some of their rhetoric and some of their homiletical techniques to persuade people to follow their version of the gospel. So Paul, I love Paul. He's, uh, as one scholar says, he's engaging in this wonderful comic parody of what these super apostles are doing. Verse 17, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. I love it. Since many boast according to flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. You're so wise. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Yeah, yeah, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Yep, me too. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, Paul. I love, come on, I'm a better one. 
And then he, he, he digresses a little bit because he's trying to, like, again, he wants them to know he's teasing them because there's a deeper wisdom to what he's talking about. I'm talking like a, like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. So Paul now is listing his achievements. But this is like a subversive, upside-down boast that Paul has. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. It has nothing to do with the marijuana. Let's move on. Three times, bad Christian. Just want to make sure you guys are awake. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. I mean, does Paul have a pathological edge to him? <laughs> Right? Is he somehow immune to, to suffering? Does he have an insatiable desire to suffer? Is Paul, I've, I've read this, Paul is somehow a masochist? No. Paul, he's not celebrating these achievements because he inherently loves to suffer. Can I get an amen to that? Again, there's a deeper wisdom that Paul is fleshing out here. He says, I have danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I remember as a young man, my, my mom would come to me, Pastor Connie. How many of you love Pastor Connie? Come on, give it up for Pastor Connie. So she would come up to me and she would say, Chris, you are destined to be a pastor. And I remember I would sometimes bring this text to her to refute, like, there is no way that I'm ever going to be a pastor because I know what being a pastor actually means. It just means my death, my eventual death, right? So it's like, this is, man, you should feel a little bit uncomfortable. Paul is giving credentials to his apostolic vocation. But again, uh, there's a deeper wisdom that we'll flesh out here that Paul is, is uh, writing and communicating to the church in Corinth. Verse 29, he says, who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, everyone say boast. Man, if I'm going to boast, I will boast. Check this out. Here we get the heart of God. I love this. God's not proud. <laughs> God's not obsessed over his dignity and over his reputation. He's not worried that five billion people in the world don't come to a church service and lift up their hands and do the Pentecostal two-step in honor of him. God is not worried about his reputation. But Paul says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? Why is that the case? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But when, when, <laughs> when you realize you're weak, then you're forced to rely on God. When you, when you realize you're weak, you, you also realize that you're not in charge and that you have to rely on the one who's in charge, and that's when God can display his power through you. So Paul is saying, verse 31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he continues, who is blessed forever. He says something interesting. It's like he's saying an oath. Who's blessed forever knows, after he's listed out his achievements, knows that I am not lying. I was shipwrecked. I was stoned. I was this. I was that. I was in danger of this and that. And then we have like this climactic moment, verse 32. And he, he writes, at Damascus, the governor under King Artis was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall 
and escaped his hands. Paul, what are you talking about? Are you ready for this? Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for your strength and your energy. I thank you for your help, my voice. Lord, we love you, Jesus. You are amazing. Lord, as we talk about this subject on pride, give me your uh, grace. Lord, our hearts be soft to what you want to say to us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So quick history lesson uh, in ancient Rome. If, if you nerd out on Lord of the Rings, you're going to love this, right? So in, in ancient Rome, a, a common military tactic was the siege. Everyone say the siege. So if you know the siege, I mean, we've seen a lot of movies where, old movies, where if an attacking army wanted to, like, starve a city, they would surround the city. We call that the siege. Um, but if you wanted to, like, hasten the siege, you would develop or build these or construct these big ladders, long ladders. And so you would construct these long ladders, and you would put men, and they would climb um, these ladders. Let me just say this really quick. There was a thing in ancient Rome called the Corona Moralis. Everyone say the Corona Moralis. It simply means it's translated the crown of the wall. So it was the most prestigious uh, military achievement that you could ever reach. Uh, the equivalent today would be the Congressional Medal of Honor. So it's, it's, it's similar to that. So if you achieve this kind of this status, if you were crowned or given the crown of the wall, the Corona Moralis, um, you, you, were, you were big stuff in ancient Rome. And so back to constructing these ladders. So you would construct these ladders. And uh, it was a precarious thing. If you're a soldier, I mean, you had to be a little bit pathological. If you're going to climb a ladder, like I could never do it because I just hate heights. How many people hate heights, right? So I could never do it because I hate heights, but I could never do it because obviously defenders don't want you to come into their city and sack their city. So they would shoot arrows at you. They would drop big rocks that would crush your skull. Don't want to be too graphic. Um, but they would also throw like boiling hot water, which is common practice. So you, you had to be a little bit crazy to go up the, these, these ladders. If, everyone say if, if you were the first soldier over the, climb up the ladder, you go over the wall into the city, if you were the first soldier, um, and you could live to tell the story, because most soldiers who were the first over the wall um, could not tell. Uh, usually they ended up being killed. But if you're the first story and you could live to tell the story, you would go back to Rome, and you would, because Rome was uh, really, really tolerant at a lot of different pagan deities. You would invoke uh, the deity that you serve, and you would swear an oath that you were first the first soldier over the wall, and they would give you this prestigious uh, Corona Moralis, the crown of the wall, and it was give it to you, and it was it was um, a really special sacred event that took place when you received it. Paul, as one scholar uh, uh, thinks, is most certainly doing something like this. He's listing out his achievements. He's giving us like an upside-down version of the Corona Moralis, the crown of the wall. It's not the crown of the wall that um, Paul is seeking for. What is he seeking for? He's, it, essentially, he's seeking for the Corona Christi, the crown of Christ. It's a radically different way of seeing the world. And, and Paul is essentially saying, hey, pride. Everyone say pride. Pride and, the, and the, the cult of fame and the hero worship and the showy rhetoric that these uh, super apostles have embraced goes in the opposite direction of where Jesus is going. And this is the basic point that he's making. Paul doesn't have an, uh, uh, 
an issue with uh, pathological suffering. He's not a masochist. He is in, in love with Jesus, and so he's really not interested in himself. He's not interested, per se, about what people say about him or what people think about him or what the super apostles think about him. He's just obsessed about what Jesus thinks about him. And this is good preaching material, right? So um, what is pride? And I want to talk about the solution, how we can deconstruct pride in our life. Before I do that, though, um, I want to talk about flesh out pride. C.S. Lewis, if you don't like C.S. Lewis, you're not going to like today at all. C.S. Lewis, he defines pride as the ruthless, um, sleepless, unsmiling concentration of the self. So pride is not just, okay, like, yeah, you kind of have your days where you think more of yourself, you fantasize that you're the greatest, like, the basketball player ever, ever right? You can, you can break somebody down with your crossover or whatever. Pride is a basic, thank you, Tracy, for that laugh. Thank you very much. Pride is a basic, because she knows that's exactly what I used to think of when I was a young man. Um, but pride is a basic human condition where we concentrate exclusively on ourselves, which leads to the objectification of people. Basically, you treat people, and it's a subconscious thing. Pride will mask itself. People, most of us here don't realize how proud we really are. But as it masks itself, pride on a subconscious level, maybe even on an unconscious level, leads us to um, treating people as a means to an end. So what's so bad about objectifying people? Well, um, I objectify Starbucks cups. How many of you love Starbucks? Right? To objectify something means to treat something like a thing. And so if you like coffee, you can't just drink coffee in your hands or you'll burn them, right? You need a cup to put hot coffee in. So thankfully, we've invented cups that we can put coffee in and we can have a pleasant experience, not a horrible experience. So my relationship with that coffee cup uh, is basically an objectification of the coffee cup. I, I don't see the, the good of the coffee cup. I don't love the coffee cup, right? The coffee cup is a thing to me. Like I get it, I use it, and when I'm done drinking my coffee, I, I discard it. That's a, an evocative picture of what pride does to people. Some of you don't even realize how you objectify people. Like you just treat them as things. You just use them for your own sake, what you can get out of them. And this is what C.S. Lewis, again, his definition of pride, and we're working from this definition of pride, that pride is this obsessive concentration on the self. We talked about this last week, but there are two outcomes of pride. Number one, uh, pride, because it's essentially competitive, right? We talked about comparison. It will lead you into inadequacy, right? Some of you, because you're so concentrated on yourself, you start comparing yourself with someone on Instagram, and they're, they have a massive boat, and they're the Bahamas, and they're partying, and then you look at yourself and your life, and you're like, I suck, Right? Well, that, that's this, again, because you're so obsessed with yourself, that leads to this chronic sense of inadequacy, or I'm not enough, or you open your heart to really the rhetoric of scarcity, and that's what scarcity is all about. Scarcity is assuming that you're not enough, or you don't have enough, so pride leads you in that direction. It can also lead you into the inflated sense of ego or self. 
Like it inflates your ego. You're, you're swollen. Uh, you, you, um, you, you think highly of yourself. Um, you begin to treat people for what you can use for them. You compare yourself with other people. Uh, and because you compare yourself with other people, you think you're better than them. And again, we do this mostly on an unconscious level. Most of us are not waking up in the morning with a smile on our face saying, I can't wait to be proud today. Like, I can't wait to, like, really use people for my own sake and my own glory and my own vainglory, right? Or I can't wait to feel inadequate. No, that's not the desire of your heart. Come on. God hasn't created you that way. God's created you in his image, and we're supposed to reflect his love and his goodness and his grace. And yet, I think so many times we get caught up in competition and comparison, which, again, is rooted in pride, which leads to inadequacy or um, this inflated ego. So pride leads you, and this is like pastoral stuff. Can I get really practical? Because this is going to be the last time I get practical this year. So if you take notes, you better take notes. Several things that pride leads you into. Again, pride, let's, let's jettison pride. Let's think more about this obsessive concentration on yourself. It leads to, number one, self-justification. I get this from one pastor. Uh, you begin to justify yourself. Uh, you, you're never wrong. You start to blame shift. Like if, man, if uh, the Oakland Raiders lose, it's the Dallas Cowboys' fault. Like if Duke Blue Devils, they lose, it's because Chris got up on stage and talked about the Duke Blue Devils, right? That's scapegoating. That's blame shifting. That's, that's, that's not right. Uh, pride leads you, this excessive obsession about yourself leads you into self-justifying behavior. You're never wrong. Which then leads you, kind of a corollary of that, leads you into an inability to handle any sort of criticism. Right? You just can't handle criticism. You either, because you have this inflated ego, um, you, you get defensive, you start judging those who you think are judging you, you never accept what they have to say, you can never... I think with any form of criticism, this is what my dad taught me a long time ago, there is a grain of truth. Man, this, come on. I know you're thinking through this, okay? So I'm not getting a lot of amens. But there is a grain of truth in any, in, in, in any criticism. And so, but, but people who are really excessively concentrated on themselves can't see that. And so they never accept any sort of criticism. Or if because you have... Again, another outcome of pride is this inf inferiority complex. You become so devastated by criticism. You're like, I don't have, I'm a nobody. Like, I have no talents to offer because that person criticized my gift and my talent. And it could be good criticism or bad criticism. But that's just pride. I, a, a truly humble person would accept any criticism, understand that there might be a grain of truth. Yeah, there could be some forms of criticism that have no truth to it at all, but a truly humble person isn't worried about the criticism. It doesn't devastate them. They don't reject it outright because their mind is completely focused on Jesus, which then leads you to uh, number three, People that, again, are obsessed over, their, over, them, uh, over themselves, uh, it leads to uh, poor decision-making. You're in bad relationships. Uh, you, you pick the wrong job. You pick the wrong car. You pick the wrong team. You pick the wrong, again, I just want to make sure you're alive here today. You pick the wrong stuff. You just chronically, 
you chronically make bad decisions. I've talked to a lot of people, uh, not no one in here, but uh, over the course of 20 years of being in the ministry, and it's funny, I, a lot of people have come up to me and say, Chris, I just feel like I make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. I, and they use the language or the rhetoric like, I just feel like I'm cursed, or maybe God doesn't love me, or God doesn't like me. Can I just tell you something here today? God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Lord, have mercy. God loves you so much. That's never the issue. Only proud people say that. Only proud people say that. Because usually they'll say something like, I just feel like I'm cursed, or maybe I'm just, I'm not, I need to get lucky, I'm not lucky, or I'm not fortunate, I just, I just make bad decisions. And the reason why they think that is because they don't listen to people. And they don't realize that they've so turned in on themselves that they haven't broadened themselves to the truth and the larger reality of God's wisdom. Which then leads to, it leads to um, becoming less than human. C.S. Lewis said, man, every little decision you make, prideful decision that you make, even though it might feel infinitesimal to you or small or insignificant, leads you down the road where there one day you'll be turned into a hellish creature. His point is, is that pride is the basis by which evil flourishes. So if we're going to think about a macro level, we're going to think about systemic injustice and racism that has affected our country for 200 more years. We want to talk about genocide over the last 100 years. We want to talk about Stalin and, and um, the KKK and all these different groups that have embodied the disfigurement of God's creation. If you were to like uh, trace the roots or get down to the roots of what these people groups that have committed these large-scale injustices in our world, it would simply be they obsessed over themselves. Racism is obsessing over yourself and your nationality. Come on. And ethnocentrism, we, we don't have time to get into that. But genocide, again, all these different large-scale injustices go all the way back. You could trace it all the way back to obsessing over oneself. In fact, proud people find it really hard to forgive. They harbor bitterness and resentment. In fact, in one of the reasons why people find it difficult to forgive somebody is because they, they work from an assumption that they're qualitatively different from that person that did something to them. Like, quali like you're a different species than them. And, and proud people find it very difficult to let go of resentment and bitterness because they think they're better than that other person. I'm not, yeah, they might have done a horrible thing to you. And this is not to in any way excuse horrible things that have done to us. And we need to speak truth in love to those issues. Can I get an amen? I want to be very careful with how I say this. But looking at it, the fundamental issue, and I think one of the reasons why people find it very difficult to hold, to break the power of resentment is because, man, they just, on, on a bottom basic level, they think they're better. They think they're better. So these, these are consequences of, of pride. How many of you would think pride is not a good thing, right? So uh, who has it, right? Who has it? You ready for this? I was going to trick all of you, but I said not. that would just be bad. I'm not going to trick you. Um, the people who, um, come on, 
Uh, pride is like having bad breath. Let me start there. Right? You're the last person to know that you have it. Right? It is. It's like everyone can identify pride in everybody else. It happens all the time. Man, I can spot someone who's arrogant just like that. It's easy. That doesn't make you spirit, like spiritually mature if you can identify pride in someone, in someone else. If you can identify pride in somebody else, if you hate on someone who is proud, you are a very proud person. So I'm going to offer a, a big theological word related to this. It's called, it takes one to know one, or phrase, right? The reason why we don't like proud people is because we are proud. Like one, one uh, I can't remember one, one pastor scholar, he said, man, the reason why people hate snobs is because they, they think they're superior to snobs, which is a form of snobbery. Right, looking down, it's this weird circular logic, looking down on someone who looks down on someone is looking down on someone. Right? Pride, it masks itself. I think one scholar said it's like, um, it's like an odorless thing. What's, it's carbon monoxide, is that correct? It's like carbon monoxide. You don't know it's in the house. But if you don't take care of it, it eventually is going to destroy you. So, if you, how, how, how do you identify pride? How do you define this obsession with yourself? Well, if, if, if you don't like someone who is arrogant, you're probably proud. Probably really proud. In fact, it's probably, you've, this whole message is over 29 minutes. You, you're so proud that you've only thought about other people who are really proud. Come on, which is indicative that maybe there's some work that needs to take place in your heart. So how, how do we deconstruct pride, this obsession with self? Uh, you could try today and announce to everybody, hey, I'm going to give up pride. After service. You're telling everybody at the restaurant that you've given up pride. You're no longer going to be proud, and I'm going to work on being humble today and this week. You're going to find out it's an exercise in futility. The more you try to give up being proud, the more proud you're going to be. The more you try to be humble, the more proud you're going to be. That's how difficult it is to deconstruct pride. So in your own strength and in your own ability, you can't, you can't free yourself from pride. How do you do it? Well, I, Paul gives us a solution. I'm going to, this is like my personal string theory. So I'm going to string some text for you just to give you a, a picture, an evocative picture of how we get rid of pride in our life so that God's glory and goodness and grace can flow through us. Let me just say this before I give you these texts, because these texts that I'm going to give you are formative for Paul. Um, one thing that pride does is that it eats away at your um, contentment. The reason why people are restless and the reason why people can never enter into contentment is because they're so obsessed with the self. So how do we, how do we break that off? Well, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Really, Corinthians is a long exposition <laughs> of Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. 
Uh, this chapter is all about God's people not knowing God. Verse 23 says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this. This is going to be our boast, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. Don't shut me down. This isn't, you know, it's Jeremiah 9.24. It's pretty amazing. It's the Bible. Guys, you don't want my opinion. Come on. You want God's word for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What Paul is saying is that pride is not an ethical no-no. It is an ethical no-no, but it's not just an ethical you can't do that. Yeah, we all heard good old-fashioned pride is a bad thing. Paul is saying something stronger here. He's saying those who engage or collude with this, this obsession with the self, they on, on the bottom of, of life, they don't really know the Lord. They don't know God. So it just goes to, to show that those, if, if you want to break pride, if you want to break uh, the power of obsession over the self, the way you do it is not try to figure yourself out, right? It's not to go deeper into your psyche and try to, man, manage your soul, right? You can't do it. The way you do that is you got to focus, you got to become obsessed with God. And the more you become obsessed with who Jesus is, the more you'll know who he is. And the more you know who he is, the less interested you will be in yourself. You heard this story, I, I preached it a long time ago, or shared it a long time ago. I was in seventh grade, MJ was everything, MJ, Michael Jordan, some of you don't even know who that is, but MJ will forever be everything in the world of basketball, and I remember all I wanted was um, some uh, a, a Nike Jordan, 89 Jordans. Um, the thing that, that I was, I was in a season where I love chocolate shakes. If you love chocolate shakes, you're going to love this, might not love this story. But uh, I obsess over chocolate shakes like my son, Wesley, obsesses over turkey sandwiches. Like I just always would ask my mom, Mom, can we go get a chocolate shake today? Next day, Mom, can we go get a chocolate shake? I love chocolate shakes. Well, one day my, my mom surprised me, took me to the mall. It was just built. I'm, I'm an old man. This is 89, people, 89. And uh, took me into, I can't remember the sports store, and said, you can pick out your 89 Jordans. It was the most amazing thing. It was probably the most amazing experience of my life at that time. So I get these Jordans, and I walk out, and my mom was just in a great mood. And she said, Chris, do you want a chocolate shake? And I remember looking at her, I'm like, nah, I, no, I, I don't need a chocolate shake. And I remember she looked at me, and she was just like befuddled. Like, Chris, why don't you want a chocolate shake? And I'm like, well, because I have my, I have my Jordans. Like, I had no need. It didn't, it didn't interest me anymore. I'm like, chocolate shake? No, I got these blue Jordans, and it's going to change my life, and I'm going to dominate on the court, and I'm, it's just going to, you know, I'm going to fly like Mike, which I, never happens. So what's the point that you're saying? Well, I think when you come up against Jesus... And you truly understand who he is, 
It's just, it just happens. You lose interest in yourself. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. If you don't like C.S. Lewis, just close your ears. If you get in touch, he said, with him, with Jesus, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble, meaning you're not thinking about yourself, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. If you want contentment, give it up. If you want happiness, give it up. If you want satisfaction and significance, give up that quest. Make your quest to get to know Jesus. And when you get to know Jesus, you'll find satisfaction. You'll find infinite joy. You'll find hope and peace and righteousness. Which leads to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. This is a formative passage for Paul. He says, verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in. Everyone say in. You're not in yourself. Oh, this is so freeing. You're not in your circumstances. You're not in your feelings. You're not in you, like in your own mind, right? This is where solipsism and phenomenology kind of uh, came from. It's like people were just obsessed over themselves, and they realized if you obsess over yourself, you can't get out of yourself. But we are not in ourselves. We are in Christ, Basically, Paul is saying that, man, your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is intimately bound up with the life of Jesus. So as N.T. Wright says, what is true of Jesus is also true of you. So we go to the text, Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, when the Father at the baptism of Jesus tears open the heavens, which is an apocalyptic moment, and the Father announces over Jesus the Son, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As the Father announced that over Jesus, if you are in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, then the Father is saying the same thing over you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my kid. You are my baby, whatever. If you follow me, you are beloved by me. And I am well pleased. Yeah, you made a mistake this week, a lot of them. But my love is not based on perfection. My love is based on me. God doesn't have the characteristic of love. God is love. And when you know this, man, when you know the king of glory loves you like this, the one who constructed the entire universe, Everything at the subatomic level, of all the raw materials that we enjoy and that we use for our own end and our own good. When you realize that the King of Glory loves not just an abstract world, but on a personal level, loves you, your name, you, 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 you. You'll lose interest in yourself. You're not going to play the silly little games of obsessing over insults. Come on and feeling inferior, and feeling inadequate. Hey, yeah, that guy could be put, hanging out with Jay-Z, and he's like doing great things, and that's okay. But in no way affects your self-understanding and who you are in Christ because your Father loves you. 
to the degree you know this is the degree that you can walk out biblical humility. The reason why we obsess over ourselves is because we don't know this. And so what we do, we're satisfied with cheap parodies of glory. Pride and hero worship and listing out achievements and showing off and obsessing and concentrating obsessively over yourself just shows that you don't know how good you really have it. Paul says in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, I love this, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is Paul saying here? All the status you need, is it okay if I preach? All the status you could ever hope for, is found in Jesus. All the beauty, all the justice, all the justification, all the love that you could ever want is found in Jesus. For my one philosopher friend, Jeff Green, right? All the ontological repair that you could ever hope for is found in Jesus. So why would you want to be satisfied with with some cheap imitation of that? I love Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, hey, yeah, I'm going through all these light momentary afflictions, but hey, it ain't no thing because of this eternal weight of glory which is in front of me. Man, Paul sees something that we can't see, that there's glory, that God has something for us that we can never get in our own ability, that we can never find in someone else. Then we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. Again, you see this motif of boasting and Paul subverting it. He says, that's futile. That's all theological dum-dum stuff, right? So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. No, this is remarkable language. All is yours, the present, the life, the future, the universe, the cosmos. What, what, what? That's all yours? Yes, because he, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, hey, you, you're kings, you're kings and queens. That when, when God, man, when he rescued you, he didn't just rescue you so you can one day go to a, a post-mortem disembodied place we called heaven. No, you are rescued so you can learn to reflect the love and the grace and the beauty and the wisdom of God back into this world. And he fashions his language around kings and queens and priesthood. This is provocative language. There is glory that we don't understand that you've been given the cosmos, the universe, because you are in Christ, this is incredible stuff. What Paul is essentially working from is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not just some abstract thing that happened 2,000 years ago. If you accept Jesus into your heart, you can fly off into some disembodied place and play a disembodied harp, wear a a diaper, right, like the angels, and sit on the cloud for the rest of eternity and have a wonderful, blissful time. That's not my definition of of joy, right? That's despair. And yet yet, many people have caricatured heaven and Christianity 
as that. No, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is all about God's future world rushing into the present. It's basically a statement that our world, the cosmos, the universe, is now completely in a different context. Meaning that all creation has been defeated. Lust and pride and greed and jealousy, all of that was a part of old creation. It disfigured God's world that was dethroned or overthrown at the cross. And then Jesus came back from the dead, bodily from the dead on the third day, and launched new creation. So new creation is the new power. And new creation operates only on love and forgiveness and thinking less of yourself. To, for Paul to engage in um, pride and obsession with yourself is to engage with something that is dead, overthrown. It's kind of like as I end here, and pretty soon I want our ushers to come forward, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, when I was growing up, made varsity as a junior. He's playing basketball. And so we were really excited. I think I was a freshman at the time, so I was really excited for my friend. So he's playing at Capitol High, and just bad things happen, happen at Capitol High. So anyways, I'm totally joking. Capitol High is a great high school. Um, but he was playing first game on varsity. He gets, he gets the rebound, and he, for, he gets a little disoriented. He goes in the opposite direction and scores for the other team. And I remember he actually ended up having a really good basketball career, great athlete. But this was his first moment playing basketball at a varsity level. And I remember I felt so bad for him. Uh, he handled it well. He, he, it didn't devastate him. He has a great family. I think he's, he's serving Jesus. He's a great guy. But it was one of those things where I just felt so bad because it was he did exactly the opposite of what he was supposed to do. This, to me, is a picture of those who collude with comparison, and who, who obsess over themselves, who, who, you know, who, who try to do things in their own strength. It's, it's doing the opposite of what we're called to do. It's, it's going in the wrong direction. It's scoring on uh, your own team, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive for those to collude for Paul with showy rhetoric and all this kind of stuff is to forget how much God loves you. And then we end with Galatians 2.20 and then I'm done. I have been crucified. This is what Paul said with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but a Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love the personal dimensions of that. If you realize that Jesus loves you in a way you can't even imagine. The King of glory loves you. It breaks off this obsession with yourself and sets you free to truly be humble. I want to end with this. Um, I want us to practice this one thing before we take communion. This week, the next seven days, I want you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. How do we do that, Chris? Well, I want you and maybe you need help, have someone, maybe talk to somebody. I want you to identify all the times in a conversation, any given conversation, that you talk about yourself and change it. We, let me sharpen that up a little bit. C.S. Lewis said, hey, if you truly met a humble person, you wouldn't know they're humble. 
is we usually think humble people, right? They, they tell you that there are nobody. God crushed me in, in 86. He obliterated my personality. And now I, 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 I'm not going to think. I'm not going to do anything. I'm a horrible human being, right? I'm like, oh, my God, you don't know Jesus. That's what we think humility is. No, 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 no. If you truly met a humble person, you know you would find, you actually not, you wouldn't even recognize that they were humble. Why? Because they were totally interested in you. They would be asking you questions. They'd be talking about your life. Man, you look really good today. And even if they're having a bad day, no sweat. It's a light momentary affliction, bad hair day. Don't even worry. I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm interested in Jesus and I'm interested in you. So what's our practice? I'm going to sharpen it up. Let's practice thinking about other people. Let's practice asking questions in our conversation, not just telling people about ourselves, but trying to figure out other people. And the more we do this, the more we can act our way into new thinking. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that we can't try not to be proud. We can't work our way into humility. I thank you that humility is a byproduct of just taking our embodied lives, taking our attention, our hearts, and just focusing on you. And in this holy moment, that is exactly what we do. As we receive communion, help us get our eyes off ourselves, and help us set our attention on you today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.